basically our whole mission is to help our readers be the smartest person at the party. And, you know, if they're there with a nuclear scientist, okay, maybe they're not the smartest, but hopefully they're the most interesting. Welcome back to Media Voices, everybody. We take a look at all the news and the views from the media world over the past week, and there has been a lot of it this week. I'm Chris Sutcliffe. I'm Esther Thorpe. And I'm Peter Houston. And that extract you just heard was from my interview with Erin McCarthy, Editor-in-Chief of Mental Force. It's titled 20th Anniversary in May, and I spoke with Erin about the secrets of its success, the perfect Mental Floss story, and how it's all changed over 20 years. Not least the shift away from print, which still breaks my heart. And if you listen long enough, you'll find out where Napoleon's penis ended up. Excuse me? Yeah. No, do where you mean, Napoleon's penis ended up. Do you mean after he was dead? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, all right. Okay. So <laughs> Sidebar of shame for Napoleon. Oh, well, I assume it was after he was dead. <laughs> you hope so. Actually, I mean, seriously, that's Thanks for getting us back on track. But to begin with, though, we're going to start with our news roundup. And it has been a big week for Twitter. Some very, very clever acquisitions and mergers. And then just something that fell apart in the execution slightly. So, Esther, why don't you start us off by talking about its new tipping feature? Okay, you just just ruined the punchline for me there, but sure. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, Twitter this week, kind of a little bit out of the blue, launched a new tipping feature. Um, so tip jar is allowed if you're, I, I guess, probably, I'm, I'm not a cool enough count. I've not been allowed okay. it. If either of you got it. What? Uh, what? Verified? Uh, well, if either of you got the tip jar feature. Nope. I can uh, just okay. about do spaces. I so, don't even know about that. <laughs> what? Well, because um, I've been driving, I'm not. True, true. Um, so it's currently like limited to a group of creators, journalists, experts, and nonprofits. Apparently, they're gonna, they're just kind of gonna test it out and see how it goes. But everyone can send tips, so we can take money, but we can't. No, we can give money, but we can't take it. Um, so yeah, Story that's. Of my life. <laughs> um, that's it's kind of been on their roadmap for a while, but because um, I think they were saying that you know they they see that when people tweet, they'll you know if a tweet goes viral, people will post underneath, "Here's my Venmo, here's my PayPal." Yeah. Um, here's how you can support me. Um, so yeah, this this tip jar will just kind of enable a way to do that and get you paid for good tweets. So that, see, that, that, that seems so very smart to me. I, I know it's smart, but paid for good tweets? What? Well, here's the thing: it's not um, you're not paying it in advance for that kind of stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's, it's literally just a reward for somebody having made you laugh or providing a really good piece of journalism or whatever it is. So I'm I'm less concerned about this being a yeah that was a kind of reactionary of me I take that back. <laughs> yeah. but they they had actually apparently discussed that kind of um, yeah subscription tweets yeah that's because um, I think I think I'm sure we discussed this sometime <laughs> last year when they were initially looking at it but they they've kind of said well that wouldn't work the way that Twitter is whereas this is a bit more like you can show appreciation for, for people you like and yeah I get um, that actually I get that that's that's no different than what we do with coffee coffee. Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. Just like toss a coin to your witch, to your Twitcher. <laughs> <laughs> it just it just kind of makes more sense that way. What's the sort of the the revenue share on that? They're not taking any commission, but what's been sort of the practical concerns around it? 
Well, they're not taking any commission yet. Obviously, mm. that could change. Um, but they're actually, they ended up in a bit of a mess on Friday because it turned out if you paid through PayPal, PayPal just sent your home address straight to the tipper. Um, that, I mean, that, that's just the way PayPal works. Like, you can't get around that. So Twitter's now had to, like, rectify and, and just put a bit of messaging just to make it clear that if you fill in PayPal, um, your home address is going to the person you're tipping. Yeah. Is it that's... only PayPal? Yeah, yeah, apparently it's it's not something that the others share. I, I don't know the technical details of that. That's just a bizarre way of going about it, though, isn't it, on PayPal's end? Well, that's what PayPal does, though, because you buy a pair of slippers and it needs your address. So they've just not thought it through. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm less concerned about that. Like I said, I think that was a bit of a blip. Overall, I, I think this is a good a good endeavor from Twitter. And it's What's something that I, I say with complete knowledge that I'm never going to receive a single tip for anyone. <laughs> but it's all part of this kind of, well, fundamentally, it's a reader revenue play from from Twitter. Yeah, of which they've been doing an awful lot this week. So, mm-hmm. Peter, what was the scroll thing? So, the scroll thing. Uh, Twitter has made another acquisition. They bought scroll, which is... Um, it's like a fancy ad blocker in a way. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. Um, it kind of you, you pay five dollars a month, and it gives you access to ad-free content. So, like a lot of these kind of newsstandy type products, the money split with the publishers depending on how much time you spend with them. Actually, I've seen a tweet probably a year ago now from Tony Hale, the guy ex Chartbeat, who set yeah. this up. And one of the things, I don't know if they still do it, but they used to do it, was actually show how much money from your subscription went to the individual publishers. Yeah. Which is very cool. That is very cool. A nice way of going about it. Um, so they, the publisher gets 70% of that $5. Um, and this week, Twitter bought them. Which, I mean, to be honest, is more of a game changer for scroll than it is for Oh, Twitter. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, we knew that Twitter was going to eventually do something like this. I think it was... But people... I saw people on the timeline, on the Twitter timeline, basically saying that this was just a fantastic and very, very well thought through acquisition from Twitter. It's been very strange to me this week, actually, just on sidebar, to see Twitter actually making changes that people approve of. <laughs> Between that and the sort of the uncropped pictures. Well, except, except they shut Nuzzle. And that yeah, got true, a yeah. bit of backlash. People missed it instantly. This and the acquisition of review, like what, a month or two ago? Yeah. Yeah. Um, they've said that that's part of something called long form, which they're, they're making, which they kind of want to give readers this this really good experience of like articles, threads, newsletters, sort of on and through Twitter. Mm. And I just think like... I think they're the right kind of company to be experimenting with something like this because new, like news publishing actually really matters to them, unlike companies like Facebook where it really doesn't. Mm. Um, yeah, and I, I can I can see I can see it looking very different, but also quite exciting by the end of this year. Yeah, no, definitely. I think I saw a tweet uh, earlier in the week or last week from um, Corin Podger, who was basically saying, you know, what a couple of years ago we were looking at Twitter as a sort of failing enterprise and, you know, thinking about archiving all our tweets. Whereas now it's not in necessarily rude health, but it has a better idea of what its core proposition is, what it can build around that. And its financials are actually doing pretty well. It's, which is great because I pour so much of my time into Twitter. If it weren't, I would just be bereft. <laughs> I mean, so is, 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 that, is that the one kind of caveat to that though? Is, that, is, the, is this going to end up being a place where journalists spend an awful lot of time and it's yes. useful to them and something that most normal people are like, eh, well, his thing, I think this, the thing like the, the tipping thing is it's 
built onto Twitter, isn't it? It's something that people who aren't journalists can use to kind of reward the content that they want. It doesn't necessarily have to be that of journalists. Um, so I think that they are building up this this subscription play for its own business, and they probably will make more acquisitions in things like, you know, that live video side that they were thinking about a couple of years ago once they've got their financials and better health for the mm. user. The, the problem they've got still is all the toxic bullshit that is on Twitter. They're still yes. going to deal with that. Yeah. I mean, Although, like you're just fucking dealing with human nature, aren't you? They announced another feature this week that's, that meant if, you were, mean com- tweets, if you were composing oh, yeah. a mean tweet, they're going to be like, are you sure you want to send this mean tweet? How are they going to do that? I don't know. Have, have you experimented? Be- have you tried sending mean <laughs> tweets? You can, you can be very, very mean to people without using any keywords. I doubt that their keyword like search or whatever is going to pick up words like lick spittle. <laughs> or your so mouth. it's only if it's like you're tacky and I hate you yeah exactly yeah the word hate's going to be flagged instantly um, it'll be interesting I mean obviously that's one of the oh you know what's interesting about that Esther what is that they found out that people sort of genuinely the, the early research found that people genuinely did then back out of doing the tweet oh yeah yeah I saw that <laughs> it's, like, like, it's like you're about to be mean oh okay yeah. I'll rethink what oh, I'm sure. to say then no, you know what I'm sorry <laughs> You know, the problem with that is that nice people, generally nice people, will back off. But the arseholes will absolutely plow on. They'll see that as some kind of badge of honour. Is this not is this not part of the thing? Is if, if you're reducing the amount of mean tweets that are sent by like 20, 30%, you're making things a little bit less toxic. Yeah, yeah. that has to be a good thing. <laughs> okay, well, please tweet us nicely about your thoughts on Twitter's acquisitions and its future plans. And why we should have a tipping fee. <laughs> and now for the news in brief. It's been a long time since we've mentioned this man's name, but Donald Trump. Napoleon. <laughs> <laughs> um, so his ban from Facebook has been upheld by the Facebook Oversight Yay. Board. Da, da, da. But <laughs> there's oh. a big but involved in this. Not just yeah, I've seen that tennis picture. Um, the board criticised the indefinite nature of the banner and has ordered Facebook to review the decision and justify a proportionate response that is applied to everyone, including ordinary users. So basically... Do most ordinary users call for a coup? <laughs> um, well, some do. No, actually, there's a fair few ordinary users that are worse than that and they basically just get, like, you know, the ban hammer for a couple yeah. of weeks. So, so Facebook, the, the oversight board, ironically named, has basically just said... Um, you know, if, whatever you apply to him, you then got to apply to everybody else who is equally crappy. Yeah. I'm, if it, you were Mark Zuckerberg and you had spent the millions of dollars <laughs> that it probably cost to set this up, mm. and the first major decision that you put across their desk, they're like, nah, here's six months, you tell us what you're going to do. Yeah. But like, what the actual. Well, uh, yeah, I know, but. It's the world's massivest hot potato. <laughs> it really like, is, yeah. But at least they did uphold, uphold the initial ban because if they hadn't, that would have been absolute chaos this week. I think, I mean, the, the problem is, A, he's going to come back on YouTube, I was reading, fairly soon. But also, this, like you said, that hot potato just speaks to the lack of, of ownership anybody at Facebook or the oversight board actually wants to take about this kind of stuff. You can't just keep batting this backward and forward until the public forgets about it. But then you look at Twitter on the other hand, and they're like they're they're almost playing whack a mole with it because he um he set up oh, a new yeah, account that, um, that was supposed to from be the relaying desk information of WJ Trump. from his yeah from his new platform, and they were like, no, you're yeah, back, get fucked. yeah, and just just banned him again. So 
That's another um, point in Twitter's favour from my from my point of view. Oh, there's a lot of love for the Twitter today, yeah? Yeah. Wow. And the latest version of iOS 14.5 has a feature called App Tracking Transparency, which requires apps to specifically ask users for permission to track their activity. Effectively, people have been saying for years and years and years that people want personalized ads and that they need that data to actually be able to serve that. Well, <laughs> yeah. so far, only about 4% of iOS users in the US and 11% worldwide are saying yes to that tracking which has serious implications for the ability of platforms like Facebook and Snapchat to be able to actually deliver upon its ad targets. So they're all scrambling now to create products that sort of circumvent that slightly. Just a, just a total fucking nightmare for those guys, but good for everybody else, as in the users. But also, right, Facebook has got enough first-party data to be able to <laughs> perfectly adequately serve you personalised ads. It doesn't need all the third-party crap that goes with it. Ah, but how is it going to track you across multiple apps and devices? Yeah, it's retargeting. Uh, Hearst has uh, offered voluntary buyouts, or what we would call voluntary redundancies, mm-hmm. to all its sales and marketing employees in the US. And Hearst UK is looking to make up to a fifth of its staff redundant. This is really, a, oh, I don't know, this is a sad story because we were like, yay, Hearst, you haven't laid mm. anyone off over the pandemic and now... Well, they, they didn't cut They didn't cut any salaries last year either. This is a sad one. And I, I don't mean this to say as cynical as it sounds, but it's like, don't let a good crisis go to waste. Yeah. Okay, I, I'm going to try and do this without getting irritated because the okay. messaging around this has is, is really wound me up this week. Nice, um, okay. But a record 44% of the New York Times' new digital subscribers came from non-news products this uh, this quarter, like cooking, games, and audio. Um, great. That's that's really interesting. Um, but it, it, quote, only added 167,000 subscribers to its core, core news product over Probably the last change. three months, uh, apparently signaling a post-Trump era slowdown. Okay. <laughs> now, is this <laughs> so? Was it the only in that sentence that really pissed you off? I, it was. It was just all the people just going like, "Oh, see, Trump was really good for news," oh. and um, like, <laughs> it, I, I just think this is one of those places where, yes, world destruction, doom, and chaos is great for news. Oh, I but also lot. like it's been so lovely the last couple of months <laughs> just to have like. Quite, and I don't. I don't think. I, I. I honestly don't believe you need absolute world devastation in order to drive your subscriptions. If you do, you you need to have a serious look at yourself. If it bleeds, it leads. Whereas I think that this this is much more the case that it's it, it's like selling iPhones. Eventually, you reach the number of people that are going to buy an iPhone. You, you oh, kind shit. of you, you hit a cap there, and this is going to be the same with the New York Times. Like they're going to eventually hit a cap of the number of people that will ever buy a subscription, and that's oh. nothing to do with the news cycle. That's to do with the number of people that can or, or will get a subscription. You're talking about complete global saturation of NYT subscribers. Mm-hmm. I think so. I mean, give, give, they are they are very US centric, and you are going to hit that ceiling eventually. I think they still have an awful lot of headroom there. I think they do, but I think growth is going to slow, and I, oh, I don't yes. think that's due to the news cycle. I think that's that's due to saturation. The, the what the news cycle will be the thing that drives renewals. Well, uh, Trump's re-election campaign will start pretty soon, so this should be fine. The Athletic is seeking to quote unquote merge with the NYT after talks <laughs> with Axios broke down. The word merge there is doing an awful <laughs> lot of work. A lot of work. Yeah. The the one thing that made me chuckle is the seeking to about this actually because we could we could seek to merge with the MIT, couldn't we? I'm I'm seeking to marry Scarlett Johansson, but that's not necessarily <laughs> what's going to happen. 
Yeah, it was very much that kind of vibe. But I was thinking in the week, is there now a business case for startups that just launch big, snap up as many subscribers as possible, and then just try and sell instantly to the yeah. MIT? Yeah. They've been trying to do that, though, and it hasn't worked. YouTube is spending $7 million to fund two new programs to help journalists looking to build an audience on, guess what? YouTube. Hmm. Uh, this is the first time that YouTube has spent money to fund journalism independently of the Google News Initiative. I mean, do journalists use YouTube? Some of them do. Um, Young Turks are a sort of, you know, news channel, effectively, that is almost exclusively YouTube. Hmm. But that's part, maybe that's partly the point. Maybe they think that there is a sort of, like, a space for that. I doubt it, particularly for individual journalists, but... Um, all right, so following our conversation last week, uh, Yahoo and AOL are to be sold by Verizon to a private equity firm for $5 billion. Which sounds like a lot, but that's actually around 1% of their peak valuation. It's got to be one of the worst content plays of all time. That's even worse than some of the ones that Rupert Murdoch's been involved in. <laughs> the only thing I care about is my Yahoo email, <laughs> which I've had since about 1980, whatever. What? I don't know. How old's Yahoo Mail? Let's look it up. Let's look it's not, Yahoo it's Mail. definitely not older than me and Esther. Nah, it says 1997. That's bollocks. Okay. I've got older <laughs> emails than 1987. So, yeah, that's all I care about. Although, <laughs> is that worth $5 billion or something? <laughs> oh, I'm not exactly sure about that. This week, I spoke to Mental Floss Editor-in-Chief Ed McCarthy on the 20th anniversary of the title. We spoke about how the magazine started in a university dorm room, its mission to help people feel smarter, and how the team decides what to cover. But first, I asked Erin to describe Mental Floss for listeners that might not know it. Uh, Mental Floss is an online destination for curious people. Um, at the at its core, um, and basically on Mental Floss, you can find things like amazing facts. Um, you can find answers to questions you've always had, or maybe questions that didn't occur to you. Things like why do they call it Bone China, or what is Mercury retrograde, and why do we blame literally everything on that? And then you know interesting stories that you didn't know that you needed to know, like how Saddam Hussein. Uh, wrote a romance novel um, or where Napoleon's penis ended up. Uh, spoiler alert. I don't know if I want to know that. Yeah, well, it's in New Jersey. I'll just wow. tell you that much. Um, but basically our whole mission um, is to help our readers be the smartest person at the party. And, yeah. you know, if they're there with a nuclear scientist, okay, maybe they're not the smartest, but hopefully they're the most interesting. So, Mental Floss is 20 years old this month, right? Isn't that wild? Yes. Uh, well, I, I, for me personally, because I've said this so many times before, I was a Mental Floss nut when it was, uh, mm-hmm. when I used to fly back and forth to the States and I'd always buy it and I just loved it. Yeah. So, to, to see it being 20 years old is, you know, it's actually really reassuring because it is. We obviously worried about so many print magazines disappearing mm-hmm. and. What, what do you think's kept it going? What's the secret of the success? Well, there's no one thing, um, but I do think that there are a few things. So one, um, I think our dedication to digging up weird information and fascinating stories 
you know, that's been part of Mental Floss's DNA from the beginning. And whether you were reading the print magazine or visiting the website, that's just what Mental Floss does. So that has not changed. We also cover so much that we appeal to a very wide audience. Um, And the broadness of our coverage has also helped us with things like organic search. You know, those big questions I mentioned, if anybody searches for those on Google, there's a big chance that Mental Floss is going to pop up um, and bring a new reader to the site. I would also be remiss if I didn't mention our readers. They've been a huge fan of the brand since the beginning, and that's largely due to the care and the time that Will Pearson and Mangesh Hatikater took when they founded the brand, you know, to communicate with people and build something that they really loved, and they have stuck with us, and we for sure would not be here if it weren't for them. I also think a little bit it's that we don't take ourselves too seriously. You know, we take our editorial process really seriously and we cover serious topics. But in general, I think we're kind of looking at the world from a place of wonder and curiosity and delight almost all the time. And I think that's why it's fun to read Mental Floss and also really fun to work here. How much of that goes back to that kind of origin story that you mentioned? You know, the idea that guys founded the magazine because they were just asking each other these these questions all the time oh yeah i mean it's um it's so funny because i actually sat down with them to chat about this in honor of the 20th anniversary and it's you know i had never i worked with them very closely for a long time and i had never actually sat down with them and asked them like tell me about what it was like when when you started this basically mental floss came from the conversations that they were having with their friends in the dorm about things like what's the sexiest dinosaur and and things of that nature. And if I had to answer that question, ooh, um, not the T-Rex because it's got weird arms. That's too obvious, huh? Yeah, and and too obvious. I don't know. I I need to think about I need to think about that. Um maybe the Velociraptor anyway. I was say I guess a Velociraptor, but it's gotta be the blue one that's in that last what was it called? Something Jurassic World. Jurassic World, one? yeah. That's um, a cool day, so. But they do. They did actually have feathers, so you know they got a little flare going on. Yeah, that, and that's less cool, though, isn't it? When you think of a dinosaur with <laughs> feathers. Well, they're just you know big birds. Um, so look at a chicken and think about that. But yeah, I mean, they basically wanted to start Mental Floss because they there were a bunch of things that they wanted to look into. And they were at school and they thought, what better place to start a magazine when you have access to all of these experts in all of these areas who can who can break down these things for a general audience, you know, and kind of package something that feels, you know, like it's a friend talking to you about cool stuff that they know, just like a smart person who knows a lot about things and can't wait to share them with you. And that hasn't changed. I mean, that's still our that's our bread and butter. That's our tone that's what makes us excited to come to work every day. So a lot of what ends up on Mental Floss are questions that we're asking each other or stories that we have found that we need to know more about. So it's it's it still operates in the same way as it always has. I think you mentioned the process there. I think mm-hmm. that's really interesting in the sense that how do you come up with this kind of perfect Mental Floss story? What's the, what's the sort of essence of that story? Well, there are a couple of a couple of ways that we come up with ideas. So one is we have pitch meetings, we have brainstorms, um, and everyone brings some ideas to those. 
And inevitably what happens is we'll start at point A and end up at like point Z, 500 miles away, talking about something totally, totally different and unrelated. So when you get our team in a room and our team is just like a bunch of really delightful weirdos who have a lot of expertise and interests, you know, that are kind of niche. When you get us all together, like weird and wonderful things happen so that's one way. And then oftentimes we will find ideas just like from being out in the world, from traveling, from reading. I can read a book and find a single sentence, you know, that's basically just like some background in that book. And I'll think that's a mental flaw story. We need to do a full on feature about this. So, yeah, I would say those are the two main ways, two main ways we come up with with ideas do you have story types is there like you have because you don't really have feature stories as such we do have some longer features but they are really intensive they take they take a lot of work and we want to make sure that we're taking our time to get them right so we don't do them all the time you know that's not something you're going to see going up on mental floss every single day um we do have a few kind of mainstays so one i would say are the big questions which are the things that i was talking about earlier by the way they call it bone china because there's literally (laughs) bone in it which i didn't know what kind of bone uh, it's cow bone, I think. It's ground up. This this came up because I've been watching this show called The Great Pottery Throwdown. Uh, I've never watched it, but I know. <laughs> oh my god! I actually it's... live not too far from where that's made. <gasps> oh my gosh! In uh, Staffordshire, it's the next county. Oh my god! I'd lurk. I love that show so much. Um, but they were doing something with Bone China, and I was like, hmm, I wonder why they call it Bone China. Next thing you know, <laughs> mental floss story. So that's a good example of how something like that comes up. Um, so we have those. We have uh, what we would consider our newsy stories. So they're like, you know, have a shorter lifespan, but they're kind of quirky and they fit in with what we kind of imagine a mental floss news story to be. So it's not anything uh, in the breaking news cycle, basically. It's like, oh, you could buy this island um, or enter this contest to win a town or something along those lines. We put up a story yesterday about a wood moth found in Australia that was just huge. And I think I had a nightmare about it last night. It was a, it was a giant, giant moth. So like, that's our kind of news story, which is not to say that we like avoid things that are happening in the world entirely. You know, if there's something that happens that's terrible, we will often tell our readers how they can help, you know, because so often I think people can feel helpless and we want to help combat that. Uh, another type of story that you're going to find on Mental Floss all the time is a list. So we do a lot of lists. Each one of them is, you know, researched pretty intensely. And I love the lists because I think it's it's a way to kind of synthesize a whole bunch of information and deliver it in a way that feels really digestible. And it allows you to cover a lot of ground. So I love our lists. And then, of course, we do have what we would consider our feature stories. Some of them are more long form than others. We have certain columns like um, TBT, which basically is nostalgia based. Would you do something around so like the vaccine development at the moment? Uh, If that kind of sparked a question, would you do something that was current like that? Sure. Yeah. Um, so we do actually have a story that is talking about how vaccines get developed. It's not specifically tied to the current vaccine, but, you know, that's certainly something we've looked into in the past. And 
we are now looking at a story, for example, about vaccine myths, specifically mm-hmm. as they relate to these current vaccines. I think one of the things that was kind of a challenge for us last year was obviously we had a bunch of plans and then coronavirus happened and, mm-hmm. you know, didn't destroy all of our plans, but it was like, you know, threw us a curveball. And we kind of had to figure out how to cover that because we do know that our readers kind of consider us a break from the kind of horrific uh, news cycle. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to be really conscious of that. But at the same time, a big part of our mission is helping people lead smarter lives, right? And so you can't ignore this huge thing that's happening in the world. Like there's this pandemic. So how do we how do we cover this without overwhelming our readers? And what we ended up doing was we created a digest. We called it our coronavirus digest, very creative. And you know, that's where we kind of summarized the hard news around uh, the pandemic. So that if people wanted to know, if our readers wanted to know, they could go to that one spot And we would send links out to other sites where they could find out what they needed to know. What we did, we would break out stories like, what should I be doing with my masks? And, you know, just basically the little things that are going to help them figure out how to live their day-to-day lives in a smarter way and in a way that was going to protect them. The other thing we did was we discovered that there were pieces we had, you know, from the vault um, as Taylor Swift might say, that's not really true. They're just, they're old stories. Uh, mm-hmm. We didn't have them in a vault of any kind. And we took those because because people were trying to escape their houses without actually leaving their houses. So they were looking at pieces like museums you can visit online, which is a list we had. So we took and we cleaned mm-hmm. that. We took that and we cleaned it up. Yeah. So, th- you know, we also did those things. And we tried to focus a lot on like, positive things, you know, sharing things that were kind of uplifting at that time as well. Yeah, so you're sort of staying true to your mission, aren't you? You're not, you're telling people stuff, but you're not really becoming, I don't know, CNN or whatever. Right. We, that's, that's not mental floss, you know, we we tried to stay in our lane. So you've been, you've been at mental floss for a while now, almost 10 years. Almost 10 Um, years. Yeah, I joined in 2012. And there's been a couple of big changes. Mm-hmm. The biggest one, which I'm still sad about, I have to be honest, was that the magazine stopped printing in 2016. Right. Yeah, I mean, um, we're sad about it too. We love <laughs> the magazine. It? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I was um, more of a digital employee. I did work on the magazine from time to time, but I have a background in print before I was at Mental Floss. I was at Popular Mechanics and I right. edited... Yeah, I did a lot of late night closings for Popular Mechanics. I did a lot of cutting to fit, which is something I I miss. Um, I hate it and I miss it. And uh, yeah, absolutely. We totally miss the magazine. That's why it was so cool to be able to bring out a special issue in 2019 in partnership with the Paper and Packaging Board. You know, it was just really fun to kind of get back into it uh, in that way. Do you ever hear from old readers? Do they ever say? <laughs> yes, all the time. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Do you think if I mean your your audience now is 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 huge? You've got two and a half million people on Facebook, over one point three million on YouTube, almost mm-hmm. a million on Twitter. So there's obviously a proper digital footprint there. Right. Do you think Do you think those people are 
different than the people that used to? I mean, obviously there's more of them, but do you think they're different people than used to buy the magazine? Um, not necessarily. I mean, we often hear from former magazine readers, um, literally all the time they're telling us, bring back the magazine. <laughs> and, you know, we'd love to do it, but it's extremely expensive. Yeah. Um, so... But no, I just I think that there are there are print fans are there. They're still with us. And we just have a lot, a lot of additional fans who are there, you know, for the fun facts or they're there for what we're doing on the website. So. Oh, so the other big change is that you were acquired by Minute Media in 2018. Mm-hmm. And Minute Media is, a, I mean, fundamentally, they're a technology company. They're a publishing company, but they're very right. heavy in technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, has that made it? easier or more interesting or it's definitely been really interesting and i think an incredibly positive experience for us before we were acquired we were kind of in a bit of a holding pattern right it was like just make a good website don't worry about branching out into other things just make the website as soon as we were acquired i mean that changed immediately you know, we were looking at ways that we could expand what Mental Floss was doing to bring in new audiences and new revenue streams. You know, we partnered with um, iHeartRadio to make podcasts. We brought back the print magazine for a special issue. Um, we're actually even publishing books, two of them oh. this year, which is, uh, you know, oh, okay. really exciting for us. It's my birthday started. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the first one is called The Curious Reader, and it's like basically everything you wanted to know, all the weird things you wanted to know about uh, classic novels and their oh, authors. Great. Yeah. So like you're going to find out, you know, which author kept her husband's heart after he died and carried <laughs> oh, it with her everywhere oh, she went. And, you know, which which author was super obsessed with his chimney. <laughs> so those are, <laughs> those are the kinds of things you're going to find in there. And then, you know, we also took over the YouTube channel. Um, which we had worked on in partnership with John and Hank Green's team, brought that production in-house. And I don't think any of that would have happened had we not been acquired by Minute Media. There's just like an incredible openness to try things. Do you ever work with any of the other brands that they've got, the sports brands or any of those guys? Yeah, we do on occasion. A couple of people from the other brands have written some sports stories for us because as you can imagine, you know, we are not necessarily sports people. So they they've pitched in um, on some stuff there. And, you know, we're just constantly chatting about how we can work together. We've had some content partnerships and, and things like that. So it's been it's been fantastic, you know, and in terms of what we were doing day to day, there weren't a ton of changes for us. I mean, I think that we were really lucky because they acquired us because they liked us. They didn't want us to fundamentally change mental floss into something that it wasn't. And I feel like that's not the story with every acquisition, right? What they did encourage us to do um, was do things like look at the data and use that to inform the decisions we were making. So that helped us operate a little smarter. So in terms of where you ended up with your business model, how does how does that work, you know, between yeah. advertising or e-commerce? Or, or I ask everyone this question, and it's like, how, it's like kind of, how do you actually make money? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm obviously very, very firmly in editorial, but I can speak to it, you know, kind of generally. You know, I think as all digital businesses have found recently, it's really crucial to have diversified revenue streams. So that's exactly what we try to do. 
you know, we have direct and programmatic advertising on the website. We do have an e-commerce arm, got editorial partnerships like with the special edition magazine, you know, and these books that we're creating. And so we're just kind of constantly evaluating um, new opportunities that are going to allow us to reach new audiences and, and commercialize those where it makes sense for us. <laughs> we ask our guests always to recommend an article or a book or a podcast or whatever, but I'm going to, I'm going to spin something on you. First off, I'm going to ask you, what is your favorite ever mental flaw story? Oh my gosh. Surprise for you. This, this is like asking me to pick a favorite cat. <laughs> Can I make it one that I have written so that I'm not, absolutely, absolutely. that I'm not choosing a favorite among my writers? Absolutely. This is actually one that ended up uh, in the print magazine. It is about the Voynich manuscript, which um, I don't know if you're familiar with the Voynich or did you read this piece? <laughs> uh, I don't. I don't know where I first heard the Voynich manuscript, but I'm aware of it. Well, it's um, it's it's this book from I think they carbon dated it to the 16. Ah, no, maybe even earlier than that. Anyway, no one knows where it came from. I called it the most mysterious book in history because it's written in a code or a cipher that no one has been able to crack. Yeah. You know, like you've you had the people who who cracked like code purple during World War II working on this thing and they came up totally empty. And every I don't know, every few months or something, someone will come out and say, "I've done it. I've cracked the Voynich." And like they they never have reliably. And that has led some people to say, well, actually, it's probably a, a hoax of some kind or it was a joke, but it's got these really weird plant drawings and drawings of like naked ladies in baths. And it's it's very, very interesting, interesting book. And it's actually held at the Beinecke at Yale, in the Beinecke Library. And I think that's that's one of my favorite things I've ever worked on. To me, that is what mental floss is all about. It's about finding stuff that you were vaguely aware of, but mm -hmm. didn't really know. And, and you just find all this stuff, all these facts and figures and stuff. Yeah. And then you just kind of follow your curiosity down yeah. the rabbit hole. You Absolutely. know what I mean? And like, I hope that the experience of reading mental floss is the same as working here because it's just you know you just go yeah. to some really weird and fascinating and fun places i think you have one of the best jobs in publishing i really do. oh i think i do too <laughs> <laughs> okay i'm still going to ask you for a recommendation but not mental floss is there okay. anything that you would want to recommend to the listeners oh my gosh do you have like all the time in the world i have so many things <laughs> okay one thing i'm really enjoying right now is the hbo show mayor of east town kate winslet stars in it and I love it because I'm from Pennsylvania. It's based basically like maybe an hour away from where I grew up. And the Philadelphia accent is heavily featured. It's an incredibly difficult accent to do. Like I've lived in New York for 15 years and I've totally lost it for the most part. And they all just kind of like really nail it. And so that is very exciting to me. Um, every time I watch it, it's just like being at home with, you know, like more murder I already mentioned the Great Pottery Throwdown. I think that's like the purest TV show on right now. <laughs> just the greatest. I just finished Mary Roach's new book, which is called Fuzz. Um, it's not out until September, but it's a nonfiction book about human-animal interactions, and it's fascinating. It's going to make you look at the world in a totally different way. 
Um, she also writes the best footnotes in the business. It's almost like reading a mental floss story when you're reading those footnotes. You're like, oh my gosh, I did this did not go where I thought it was going to go. Last thing, there's one podcast that I'm listening to above any other right now. <laughs> and you're probably going to laugh, but it's called Get Sleepy. And <laughs> um, oh my gosh, I love it. So like when I'm awake, I'm listening to like true crime podcasts, which I love, but you know, you have to pay attention to those. Um, when I lay down to go to sleep, there's like a thousand things floating around in my head. I need to do this. I need to do this, blah, blah, blah. It's hard for me to fall asleep sometimes. So Get Sleepy is basically just people walking you through experiences or stories with like some really soothing sounds and you know, soothing voices. It's great. I don't know that I've heard a full one because I'm out so fast. It's great. So if anyone is having trouble sleeping, I would recommend Get Sleepy. And we are happy to announce that Ko-Fi has a monthly subscription option if you'd like to support us. We're obviously incredibly grateful for everything from the one-off donations to anybody who's chosen to support us more long-term. So you can do that by going to co-fi.com slash mediavoices, selecting the appropriate box and kicking us a couple of quid just to help keep the lights on over at Media Voices Towers. Give us all your money. <laughs> not via Twitter because we're not allowed that option yet. If you're absolutely desperate for more Media Voices content, then sign up to our daily newsletter. It contains four of the most important media stories of the day as curated by us. Hmm. Also, there's a link to our last episode, um, and there's always something else interesting in there, like um, a meetup that Essa's going to talk about. Yeah, so we have our first Publisher Podcast Insiders meetup on Wednesday the 26th of May. Um, so if you want to sign up for that, uh, well, sign up to our newsletter and we'll send you the link because it's secret. Um, but you can basically come and yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll put a tweet out with the, with the link to the form um, but yeah if you want to come and chat about all things podcasting um, the kind of challenges you face working in a publisher on podcasting all that sort of thing um, what microphones to use hmm. uh, yeah come and chat about that and um, we're hoping to make that a regular and hopefully at some point in person thing but until then and until next week when we're going to be back with another absolutely fantastic guest and a tour through all the news and views of the media world thank you very much for listening and goodbye stay safe <laughs>